0: The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. So we are in the book of Esther, and we are in chapter 7. Just uh, as we get going back in Esther, just to remind us uh, some things that we are learning in the book. Uh, so we've been talking about, there are five things that we learned throughout the, the book of Esther. You know, uh, Esther is a book that's very unique, and I'm so glad that it is, that it, it's the book that we don't see God's name mentioned anywhere, right? I mean, it's almost like the author's intentionally neglecting God's name. It's like, did you forget somebody like God, And, uh, and so it, it, it speaks into our lives because there are times in our lives where we have these Moses experiences and we are like, God is surely in this place. God is here. You know, sometimes we, we live life more like Ruth where we're like, well, I can see how God's working. You know, like I can see it over there, but maybe I'm not practically experiencing the fullness of the Lord's presence at this moment, you know? But then there are experiences where we have where it's like Esther, where we're like... Um, are you around? Like, are you here? And we experience we're just kind of like wondering, God, where are you? Like, I feel like you're, you're not here. I feel like you're absent. But Esther, one, I think it's encouraging because it says that there are times where God's people experience that, but it's not the truth. Because Esther shows us that the, though God's name is not mentioned anywhere, his presence is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. And so we, we talked a while ago that it was like a, the artist that has his student there and they were looking at this painting and they're like, are you able to see you know, the artist? And he's like, well, I, I don't see his name and I don't see any of the things. And the master's like, you know, you're looking at all the wrong places. I see him everywhere. I see him in the brush strokes. I see him in the painting style. And it's that he had eyes to see and ears to hear. And so he was able to discern God's presence in his activity. And so Esther invites us and it says, look differently, begin to look for God's presence, even when it doesn't seem like he's there because he is. It also promises, Esther promises that God works through broken people. Esther compromises all over the place, but it promises that God's not through with using broken people. And that's good news for us, Right. That even in the midst of her compromise, even in the midst of her backsliding, even in the midst of her disobedience, God says, I'm going to use you to save my people. I'm going to use you as a means of rescue for my plan. And so it speaks and it says, listen, you're never too far gone. You've never done something too bad that God can't say, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to use you for my purposes. And that's good news for us. And if you don't think it's good news, then you need, you need to know yourself better because it's good news for you too. And, uh, and so it also speaks that God is ultimately a God of rescue. Right? I mean, you look at the enemies that are set against God's people and God is ultimately one that rescues his people. He's got a heart of rescue. He's got a heart for the low down broken. I mean, think about it. He used an orphan to become a queen to redeem his people. And so God is the God of the underdog. He is the God of the lost and the last and the lowly. And so know that, that God loves, loves those people and that um, we should be a people that are for the least and the last and the lowly and the broken. Because our God is. It's almost like his calling card, right? When you find poor and you find broken, you find oppressed, you're like, God's surely going to be at work there. You know, it's like Batman's signal. You know, it's like that's where God's at work, you know, is amongst those people. And the last thing we see, you know, that the Esther should teach us is that God is a God of celebration, right? God is a God of celebration. We see Purim, right? And it's this celebration of God's rescue. And as we think of Christmas and we think of Easter, we are a people of celebration for what God has done in our midst is it doesn't just happen in a season, but these seasons are important because they remind us of these rhythms in our life, that we are constantly to be a people that celebrate what God has done for us. And so just just as a reminder, I want us to constantly, because the book of Esther speaks into these things over and over and over again. But as we, you know, we're gonna have two more weeks in Esther, but hopefully those things begin to sink in and you hear them more in the story. So open your Bibles with me. We are going to be in chapter seven of Esther and so I'm going to read the passage and then we've got uh, about four or five comments uh, that we're going to go through and we're going to read it again slowly and then pause and comment on, on the passage. So Esther chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went into, the, into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves... "'Men and women, I would have been silent, "'for our affliction is not to be compared "'with the loss of king.' "'Then king Azurus said to queen Esther, "'Who is he and where is he? "'Who has dared to do this?' "'And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. "'Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, "'and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking "'and went into the palace garden.' But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king, for sure. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, "Hang him on that." So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Dun dun dun. So, such a good just as as a reminder of where we've been in the book of Esther right? The book opens up with, uh, King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. And he is partying because he's had a big victory. Six months parties hard and, and his drunken super, he's like, come grab the king, grab the queen, Vashi. You know, I want everybody else to see how good looking she is. And so she refuses to come because she doesn't want to be treated as a sex toy, an object. And he's like, all right, kick her out, make a big decree. Women should always submit to their husbands. You know, he can't deal with his personal life. And so he makes a national decree. And, um, And so they go on and they're like, you know what? We'll really help you. You know, we're going to put on, you know, a Persian idol, beauty, beauty pageant. And so they get all these beautiful virgins to come forth to say, you know, because the the king had just lost to the Greeks, you know, so he's kind of like mourning his recent, you know, defeat. And they say, all right, we're going to, we're going to parade in all these, you know, beautiful virgins. And Queen Esther's a Jew. She's an orphan. Mordecai had taken her in and she found, she finds favor. It says she wins favor. Before with a eunuch, and then she wins favor with the king, but she compromises all along the way. She sleeps with the king before she's married to him, but the queen falls head over heels. He's like, "You're beautiful. you've got a good face and a great body, you're mine." you know?" And so he, hes like, he's wrapped up in, in Esther, she loves him. And then we see the, the enemy, Haman. Haman comes on the scene in chapter three, and Haman comes on and, uh, and Haman is second in command, he gets promoted, and everybody is bowing to Haman. Everybody is kind of stroking Haman's ego, except for Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow to him. He refuses to acknowledge his power and his might. And Haman, being a very prideful person, says, you know what, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to kill all your people because how dare you insult me? How dare you not recognize my position and my pride? And so Haman hatches this plan to destroy all of the Jewish people. And he goes, he gets the king kind of drunk, and he tells the king, hey, listen, I've got the, a great plan for you. I'm looking out for you, king. I've got your best interest in mind. And so I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver, and, uh, and if you'll just give me these people to destroy, you know, it'll all be good. And so uh, the king agrees, gives over the Jewish people to Haman to commit genocide to, and they kick back their feet and have uh, a drinking party once more, you know, to celebrate. And the whole city is in, is in chaos. Chapter five, we see Mordecai finds out he mourns and he comes to Esther and he says, listen, God's appointed you for a time like this. Do you think that you became queen just on accident? You were you are made for a time like this. And listen, salvation is gonna come. God's gonna save his people. The question is, are you gonna be part of it? Because if you don't stand up at this point, you're gonna perish. You're gonna perish, but salvation is gonna come. And so he says that you were made for such a time like this. And Esther, she rises up. It, it, this is the point where she puts on royal robes and she actually becomes a leader. No longer does she walk in the, in the shadows, but she becomes the leader that God had made her to be. And she stands up. And it says that from that point on, it starts calling her Queen Esther. No longer is she just Esther, but she's acting like a queen because she's put on royalty at this moment. And so she says, if I perish, I perish. But you and the people, you fast for me three days and three nights. Do not eat anything. Do not drink anything fast for me. And when that happens, I will go in and I will see the king. And so she goes in after fasting three days, three nights, she sees the king. And it's this big moment of her stepping out in faith. She has to step out and choose. She doesn't know what's going to happen next, but she trusts that God has got her. And so she steps out into the unknown and the the king gives her the royal scepter and forgives her. And she is so wise in her approach. She says, King, you know what I would love to give you? You know what would delight me? I want to throw you a party. That would be my greatest joy, O King, just to throw you a party. And so she is extremely wise. Not only does she have faith, but she also uses the wisdom that God gave her. And so she uses both of those, trusting in God and using discernment and wisdom in in her approach to the king. And so the king does that. They have their first party and it goes, well, Haman's at the party, you know, they're drinking. The Haman's like full of himself. He's like, man, man, she invited me, nobody else, but she invited the king and me. And so Haman goes home, you know, puffed up, full of himself. And then he sees Mordecai again, and Mordecai neither rises nor falls, and he gets angry. He's bitter at Mordecai. He's like, I can't wait this long to kill this guy. I want to kill him now. I want to kill him tomorrow. And so he goes home, and everybody kind of strokes his ego, and they hoist up this huge spike, 75 feet high. It was the most shameful death that you could experience. And they say, you know what? Tomorrow, Mordecai is going to get impaled on that. Mordecai is going to get impaled on that spike, and everybody's going to see my power. Everybody's going to see that you don't dare mess with me, thinks Haman. But he's got a feast to go to, right? I mean, who can kill people when you've got a party to go to? And so he, he puts off and he says, you know, I'll kill him later. I got important stuff to go to. And that's what we see here is that that leads us to the point in the story where we're at right now is that Haman is like, I'm about to kill Mordecai after I go get my drink on, you know? And so he, he's going to the party and later on he's planning on killing, on killing Mordecai. And so we see in verse one, it says, so the king and Haman went in to the feast, one of the things that we see in the book of Esther and it's a microcosm of what we see in the Bible is we see the centrality of meals, right? All throughout the book of Esther, all of these critical moments in the story have revolved around meals, right? Queen Vashti's deposal, right? Her being kicked off, which if she wasn't kicked off, Esther wouldn't have been able to be queen and she wouldn't have been able to save her people. That happened around a meal. When Esther is married and their celebration, right? When God gives her favor in the king's sight, there's a feast to celebrate it. When Haman says, I'm going to wipe out everybody, I'm going to wipe out all the Jews, there's a feast, right? And now, and now Queen Esther invites, invites Haman and the king into this meal together. And we see at the very end of the book, the very end of the book, it revolves around a meal, right? When there's finally rescue and deliverance for the people, what do they do? They eat, they celebrate together. And the reason I think that this is important is that oftentimes we think that food is something merely that helps us to live. And we forget and we lose out that God wants to redeem our meals. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, we see the importance that God uses meals to change the history of this world. That meals are a place that God redeems and uses for his purposes. They're a place of connection and of wholeness. And that they can be used for evil and they can be used for good, but God wants to redeem the meals that we have for his purposes in this world. They're intended to to connect. And this, I don't know about you, but this speaks to me because most of the time I'm so busy that I scarf down my food. You know, I'm like, well, I've got about five and a half minutes to eat. And so here we go, you know, and down, down it goes. And, uh, and on I go to the next task I have. And, or we share a meal with somebody and we're like, well, let's just eat over, you know, TV, or let's eat over while I'm texting on my cell phone and doing all this stuff. And we look for eating as efficiently and quickly as possible. And we we lose out on what God wants us to do in sharing meals and eating. Right? God has given food and meals as a gift, not simply for our sustenance, but for our connection to one another. He desires that we would redeem the meals that we have to be used to... Connect with the people around us, for them to be moments where we choose to be present, where we say, I actually want to be here, not I want to be everywhere but here, where we actually genuinely look into someone else's face and we say, I want to know you, I want to care about you. And this meal is a means of connection, it's a means of us being unified for a moment to share in something that brings both of us life. God wants to use the meals that we take for granted every single day, every single week, and use for his purposes. And listen, it doesn't mean that you need to share a meal with people for an hour and a half every single time. But even a 10 to 15 minute choosing to share a meal with somebody can make a world of difference. It can change someone's future, right? I mean, we see it all throughout the Bible is God uses meals to change the course of people's history, of their, of their future, of their present, in the moment, right now. And so you've got 21 meals every single week, sometimes more. But you've got at least 21 meals, you know? Sometimes maybe you're doing less, maybe you're fasting, go for you, you know? Um, but, but God's given us these meals and he wants us to redeem them for his purposes. Who is it that God's calling you to and saying, listen, I want you to use one of your meals a day or I want you to use one of your meals a week or I want you to use two or three of your meals a week and I want you to genuinely seek to connect with someone and I want you to be present with them. I want you to ask them questions. I want you to learn from them. I want you to be a means of connection and of hope and of encouragement. Right? When Jerry talked about, you know, there are people all throughout, especially in this season, are going through deep darkness. And they need someone that says, listen, I want to be present with you. Just, my, my goal in this meal is not just to eat something that tastes good. My goal in this meal is to actually know you, is to connect with you, is to be a person that says, you're not alone. You're not alone. And that is what a meal can do, is it can c- communicate that you're not alone here that you have someone else that is with you and that cares about you. And so we ought to be a people that do that together. We do that for one another in the church, but we also do that for people outside. of That's why our, our third missional practice is to eat together. Is As is we make this a rhythm of our life, we choose to open up our lives and say, you know what? I maybe don't have an hour that I can give. Maybe you do, maybe you do. And praise the Lord for that. But maybe I've got 20 minutes, you know, and it's going to take me five minutes to drive there, 10 minutes to drive there, and 10 minutes to get back. But I've got 20 minutes and I can be there for somebody and I can genuinely share a meal and that be a point of encouragement and connection. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to inconvenience yourself for 20 minutes to go and actually be present with somebody else, to be an agent of hope and of encouragement and love and grace in their life? You never know how God might use that, how they might open up, and how that might be a means of saving their life or of changing their spiritual future forever. Barry Jones says, God has a way of showing up at tables. In fact, it's worth noting that at the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, we find a table, table of Passover and the table of communion. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright captured something of this sentiment when he wrote, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. He gave them a meal. And so as we come and we're going to celebrate communion later on today, I want you to think about that. God gave us a meal. He wants us to be brought together and to connect with him, to be unified with him through this meal that we share called Communion that it brings us into the reality of who God is and what it is that he's done for us. And he wants us to participate in that ourselves, but he wants us to bring others into that experience also by sharing a meal with them. We go on. So they went to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, they drink a lot of wine. Uh, The king... Again, said to Esther, "What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled." So the the queen has found him in a good drunken posture. Right? He's had some bad drunken postures, and he's in some good one. It's like rolling the dice. You never know what mood he's going to be in when he's drunk. And so he's in the posture of like, have it all. You can have half my kingdom. And she's like, "All right. Well, I'm glad you said that now, like three times, because I'm about to ask something." And so. It says if i have found favor in your sight o king and if it please the king let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request for we have been sold i and my people to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated if we had been merely sold as we if we had been sold merely as slaves men and women i would not have been, i would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king and there's so much in in here one, it seems really odd that she's like, well, listen, if we were to be slaves, I wouldn't even bother. It's not even a big deal, you know? But we have been sold to be killed. Why does she bring up this slaves thing? And I, I was really curious about this in my study. And I was kind of like, this seems kind of an odd thing for her to bring up. Why did she just say, just save our lives? You know, but she's like, we've been sold to slavery. Well, what I found out is that when you go back and you look at Haman. When Haman is petitioning the king to kill the Jews and he says, let them be destroyed. He says, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. And if you will destroy them, that Hebrew word destroy, it can mean two things. One, it can mean that you are going to be sold as slaves or it can mean that you are going to be killed. And so it seems that what Haman had done to the king is that Haman had said, well, listen, if you just destroy, leaving that word ambiguous so that the king thought that what was really happening was a barter, it was a trade. He's getting 10,000 talents of silver and Haman is buying him a people group for his service, for his slavery. And so Queen Esther says, that's not what's happening here. If we had been sold merely as slaves to Haman, we wouldn't have bothered. And that seems really strange to us because as 21st century as American. We were like, I would have bothered. You know, like I would have come up and said, please don't sell me into slavery. But back then, they're, they didn't have individual freedom, right? They didn't have rights, you know? And so their right was whatever the king wanted to do with them. And so they realized, I don't have much freedom to barter with, but my life, my life is important. And so she's coming to him and she's saying, we are coming to beg for, for our lives. It's not merely just our freedom that we're asking for. But the second thing and the most important thing, and this is, for me, this has been my, the highlight of the whole book for me. This, this passage and what happens here with Esther Listen again to what Esther says, because remember, Esther has been denying her Jewish identity. She's been married to the king for over five years now, and the king doesn't know her past. He doesn't know who she really is. He doesn't know that she was, she's, a, she's Jewish. And so this is a big deal. She's coming to the king and saying, I know that you've been married to me. I know that you love me, but there's something you don't know. And so she's revealing a big deal, but listen to how she does it. And listen to what she says, because this is an Esther that was afraid. She didn't want to, she didn't want to cause ripples. She didn't want to bring waves up. She didn't want to cause friction. This is, this is an Esther that went along to get along, right? She was like, I'll go along as long as I don't get in trouble. And we know this because Vashti got kicked out because she was not compliant. And so Esther's like, I'm going to do everything to be compliant, you know? And so Esther goes along, she, she, Refuses to stick up for her Jewish law. For, for you know She doesn't obey the Sabbath. She sleeps with a king before. I mean, everybody was like, you're pretty much indistinguishable from a Gentile. Like, we don't even know that you're part of God's people. And so she's revealing for the first time that she's part of God's people. And hear how she does it. She says, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. What she's doing here, she's not simply saying, Oh, King, by the way, I'm I'm a Jew. No, she says, listen, if you want to grant my request, realize that these are my people. These are my people and grant my life and grant their lives. And so what she's saying in this is she is saying, King, the, the decree that you issued for their destruction, it was a decree for my destruction. The decree that you issued, if, if you will issue a decree for my salvation, if you love me, King, so much as the Queen, if you will save me, When you choose to save me, you choose to save my people. You cannot separate us. You cannot choose to save me, Queen Esther, and leave my people to be destroyed. And you cannot choose to destroy my people and save me, that we are one, that my destiny and future is wrapped up with their destiny and future. And she comes forth and she says that we are one together. And notice, none of the people had anything to do with this. Right? It's not like you know, the king was like, you know, I, I've really been examining the Jewish people and I find that they are very kind people. They're very generous and thoughtful. You know, they're very you know, kind to other people and they're very good citizens. So based on their merits as good citizens, I'm going to withhold their you know, destruction. The king doesn't say that, right? The king's like, I don't know who they are. I mean, like he has no idea. And it's not like one of the citizens comes up and says, oh, king, I know that you don't know me but I'm a very important person. I'm a very caring person. And if you really knew me, you would want to save all of us, right? They, they have no bearing on this. The only reason that the people are saved is because they're rightly connected to Esther. That's the only reason the whole, all of the people's salvation is entirely dependent upon Esther and her salvation, right? Her destruction, their destruction is her destruction. She is willing to step in and take the punishment that they deserve, that they are, well, they don't deserve, but that they are getting. And she's, and she's saying, listen, it's only on my merits. It's only on my merits, O king. You've seen me, you love me, you care for me. And if all of those things are true, then, if, then you will save not just me, you will save my people. You will save my people. And this is such a beautiful thing of the gospel. Is this not exactly what Christ has done for us as his people? Is that we come before, and, and even greater, we come before God and we are rightly in rebellion against him as king. Romans 3.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. Do you know what we earn in our sin, in our selfishness? It says all the pride, all the greed, all the selfish times that you've done, everything you've done, what you've earned by that is death. You've earned separation from God. We are righteously, rightly under the wrath of God in rebellion against him. We have no merit to bring to the king. We have no area where he can plead and say oh king do you see all these righteous things that I've done you, you see all the acts that I've done let me pile it up we have nothing to bring to the king but Christ steps in God sends his own son and says you know those people that were rebelling against me Jesus says I'm going to wrap up my destiny with their destiny I'm going to wrap up my future with their future my dest- their destruction is going to become my destruction and my salvation is is going to become their salvation. And the only way you and I participate in this is by being rightly connected to the King, is being rightly connected to Jesus. It's only, it's only by placing faith in Christ that we become rightly connected. Jesus is the only one that is able to be the mediator between us and God. He is in the right position to do what none of us can ever do. And when you place faith in Christ, when you say, I no longer am trying to save myself. I realize that I am in a rebellion against the king. I realize that, that my destruction, it is imminent, and it is serious. It's not just physical death that we face, but eternal separation. And it's serious, and we cannot pay it. And I choose, I choose to trust in Jesus. I choose to yoke everything that I have, my whole life, I choose to place upon Christ. It says that when you do that, when you turn from your sin, you place faith in Jesus Christ, that you are one with him. That you are, and Paul loves this phrase, that you are in Christ. And this beautiful thing happens. You see, Jesus' death on the cross, it becomes your death. It it signifies that the sin that has held you captive for so long, it is dead, it is gone. He has crucified it to the cross. It is no longer powerful. It is no longer alive. And that his Jesus' burial, that when he went in, it shows that he he brought all of that to the grave that God remembers it no longer, that it has been buried, it is gone. In Jesus' resurrection, it shows that when we are in Christ, we have new life in him because God saw his death and said it is enough, that his payment is sufficient. And he showed that it was enough by raising him from the dead, by bringing new life. And it says that we are in Christ, we have the ability to be born again, new creatures, new creations, no longer bound by our past because we are in Christ. And not only that, but he says that we, we have ascended with Christ, and that we are seated in Him in the heavenly places. That we are no longer just simply here on earth, but we are seated with Christ in, in the heavens. Oh, what a man! What a beautiful truth! What a most marvelous truth for us Christians to believe and to know that your future is not on your head; it is on Christ, and that He is powerful, that He is strong, and He has delivered us. He has delivered us. His salvation is our salvation. This causes us to rejoice. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1-4. through four. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, he is your life. Why? Because your lives are commingled. Right? He is, you are married to Christ. Everything that you have done wrong, he has taken. Everything that he has done right, he has given to you. You are married to him. You are, your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And what good news for us that Esther shows us that Christ and Christ alone is able to save because he is in the right position to do so. And that when you place faith in him, you can be certain that your destruction is taken away because he was destroyed. And that your salvation is guaranteed because he was raised from the dead. Let us continue on. Verse 4. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. We've been sold merely slaves, men and women, I, wouldn't, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with loss of the king. Then King Azura said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I'm sure he was. Right? I mean, that's like moment deer in headlights. Like, I was having a good time. Uh oh. Something just changed. This is not what I thought. The point that I want to make here is that throughout Esther, we've seen these two streams going hand in hand, both God's sovereignty and Esther making meaningful choices. God's sovereignty and Esther making meaningful, meaningful choices. Right, remember back in Esther, three, or Esther 4, 13 through 14? Mordecai says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, right? He says two things in this. He says, Esther, be guaranteed, be assured God is going to save. And it's not dependent upon you, right? God is going to save his people. That's a fact. It's going to happen. He says, that that's one truth. God is sovereign. God is in control and God is going to save. His plans will not be thwarted. His purposes will not be changed. So that's the truth. But then he says the second thing, right? He says, but Esther, God wants to use you in these purposes and you have a choice and you can, you can join with that purpose. You can choose to be used as part of God's plan. And so your choices, they matter. They're not insignificant. They, don't, they are not meaningless. Your choices matter and they have worth, they have value. And so he says these two complementary things that both God is completely sovereign and no one, can, no one or thing can say his hand and we make meaningful and accountable choices, right? So the first thing is we see God is sovereign. In Job 42, too, it says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure this is what separates God from false gods is that his will happens. What he wants done is accomplished. And so oftentimes we, we, we scratch our heads and we say, God, I don't understand. I don't see how is this working out. But we believe, like Joseph said, that though people intend things for God, God is behind the scenes and he's working all things together for good for those that love him are called according to his purpose. So the Bible affirms this, and this is a bedrock for our foundation. And this is the foundation for our faith. God is sovereign. He is in control and we can rest in that because if God is not sovereign, honestly, I'm afraid to make choices because I have no idea how the ripple effects are going to happen. I mean, you have no clue about the most insignificant choice you make, how many ripple effects that can do. We don't, I mean, that, that honestly is outside of our scope of intelligence, but we believe that God is in control. God is sovereign, but yet, but yet, at the same time, our choices matter. Our choices are meaningful. Our choices are accountable. Right? It's not that we just say, well, be the frozen chosen. God's going to do it, so I'll sit back, kick up my feet, and just kind of wait for God to do whatever he's going to do. Right? That's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that we are called to act. We are called to be obedient. We're called to be a part of God's plan and his purposes we're called to make meaningful choices romans 14 12 it says so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to god the whole point of giving an account is that you've done something to give an account for and so it means that that we're responsible for the motives of our heart and we're responsible for the actions of our hands and so we can't just say well god's done it god did it we're accountable and we have responsibility for the choices that we make one of the most uh Interesting parts or illustrations of this is in Acts 27. So in Acts 27, Paul is uh, in prison. He's selling he's to Italy and he's caught up in a storm. And he tells the people, you know, he's amongst all of these sailors. And uh, in Acts 27, uh, verse 21, he says this. He says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I told you so He says, listen, God, an angel appeared. God told me this is certain. God's sovereign and he's not gonna go back on his word. His purposes will, will happen. They will be accomplished. And so there will be no loss of life. I will be saved and all those that are with me will be saved, right? So you're like, great news, awesome. Let's, you know, let's kick up our feet. Let's relax. God says he's gonna save. So what do we need to do? Just wait for it to happen. But listen to what he says. Later on, you know, they run aground, throw out their anchors. And then listen to this later on. It says in verse 30, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go, and they were all saved. Right? I mean, it doesn't say that, but the the end of the story is they're all saved. So, hold on a second. Paul, Paul, you said everybody was going to be saved. How did you come later and you're like, listen, if you cut this, you can't be saved. Isn't God sovereign, but yet we make meaningful choices. And so you see this tension. You see that and ultimately God's plan and purpose was accomplished. It wasn't changed. It was real. But how did it happen? It happened through the meaningful and real choices of people. And so God's sovereign actions in these worlds, they, they work through people making real meaningful choices that we are accountable for. And so we see this throughout the book of Esther. We see both God's sovereign plan happening. His purposes will not be thwarted, but yet we see also our call to make real meaningful choices. And how does this, how does this apply? One, God's promise: he's going to save people. He's going to make a people for his name. He's promised, right? I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. How does God save people? He saves people through people proclaiming the gospel through us opening our mouths and telling others about what Christ has done in his crucifixion and his death and his burial for them. That is how God says, God's going to save. The question is, are we going to be a part of that process? God is going to save. But he wants to use you. He wants to use us together. God's going to restore his creation, right? I mean, good news that this creation we see is broken, but it's going to be even better. And so God's going to restore his creation, right? There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. right i mean kickback why not just waste stuff why not you know who cares about uh trash in the ocean who cares about you know like what we do with you know the things that are given to us i mean god's gonna restore it all right no god calls us to be a part of the restoration of creation he says it matters how you steward what i've given to you it matters what you do with your waste It matters what, you know, that you pay attention to how you treat the creation I've given to you, the animals around you, the oceans that I've given you stewardship over. It matters. You're accountable for that. You don't just kick your feet back and say, oh, well, God's going to restore it sometime. Really doesn't matter how I treat it. Not at all. You see both God's sovereignty and yet our choices. what at this God says he's going to provide for his people. Right? God promises that he'll provide for his people. Well, God's going to provide for me. So, I I mean, I might as well watch Netflix all day. Yeah, you know, I mean, hey, hang out, be lazy. God's going to provide. God promises he's going to provide, but he also calls his people to work and to work diligently. And he says, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. And so God's both faithful and sovereign in his promises, but yet he calls us to make real meaningful choices. And Esther shows this. Continue on, verse 7. It says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman begged, stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Oh yeah. And the king returned from the palace garden to the, uh, from the, garden to the palace where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he, will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So it's interesting, right? The king hears that Haman is trying to kill his, his wife, his queen, and he is... He changed from like generous drunk to angry drunk. And so he's like, it, it changes on the spot. And he goes back and he's like, and he's hatching a plan. Why doesn't he immediately be like, all right, off with, the, off with Haman's head? Well, he, he has to go hatch a plan because he starts to realize, even in his drunken super, uh-oh, I actually issued that decree. <laughs> Whoops. You know, he realized that it, it, like, it wasn't just Haman, like the king signed off on the decree. So he can't just like blame Haman for something that he signed off on. And so the king's thinking like, how do I get out of this one? It's kind of a little bit of a puzzle. You know, like how do I indict Haman without indicting myself? It's kind of like a politician that is like, well, I voted for something six months ago, but now six months later, it didn't turn out too great. So how do I get myself out of this one? You know, I'm against it. I didn't see it, it was this person under me's fault, you know? And so, and so the king's trying to figure out his way around this, how to like really get right with Haman, how to like, you know, punish him, but how to save face in the kingdom. Oh, poor Haman. He, uh, you know, he, he just gives the, the, the king the opportunity that he's looking for. And so it was a law that you weren't to get within seven feet of the queen uh, or any of the concubines. And so the king was very protective of his women. He was like, you can't even get near him. You know, you look at him wrong. It's not going to go well. And so Haman should have, Haman should have left with, when the king left. He should not have been alone with Queen Esther. but. I think Haman was like, I got a better chance with Queen Esther than the king right now, you know? So he falls down on Esther at the couch and he's like, please save my life, you know? And, uh, and you see God's sovereignty in all of this, you know? I mean, Haman should have left, but he didn't. He stays down, at, he lays down at Queen Esther's feet and the king, you know, trying to hatch this plan comes back and is like, oh, bingo. Bingo, buddy, you know? Like you're falling down at the queen's feet. You shouldn't have done that. He's like, boom, you're out, and so it's interesting because the king's still kind of figuring out, what am I going to do with Haman? Like, he's for sure going to get ousted. But then you see, like, Haman is hated, not just by the Jews, but by everybody. And so you see the eunuch, you know, eunuchs play really key roles in Esther. Like, they all the time, are the, they're the supporting cast, but they kind of, like, pop in and they're like, hey, we're here. And they make these big, like, these big plays. You know, it was like, it was a eunuch that helped Esther become queen. You know, it was a eunuch that went in between Esher and Mordecai that allowed them to communicate. And now it's a eunuch that stands up and says, oh, king, I got a great idea. Um, I know you're looking for a way to dispose of Haman, but remember yesterday? Remember that guy that saved your life, Mordecai? You, you know how you really love him and you liked him a lot and you wanted to honor him? Well, rem- Haman, huh, funny thing, Haman wanted to kill him and he made a spike for Mordecai yesterday. And so why don't we just use the spike for Haman? <laughs> You know, and so the king's like, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? And so you can tell Haman is not liked, you know, like if the servants or the people underneath you, there's a time to like overthrow you. And they're like, we're taking it, everybody in. And so the eunuch and everybody else is like, they're like, this is the time we can dispose of Haman. We're going to dispose of him. And so the king's like, great idea. They take Haman and they impale him on the spike for everybody to see, for everybody to see. And so one of the other things, you know, I want to close with this one Uh we see that our enemies are going to be defeated. Our enemies are going to be defeated and that this brings an enduring hope into our lives. Our enemies will ultimately be defeated. If we look back earlier in Esther, when Haman arose, Haman was extremely powerful. I mean, think about it. Haman was second in command. He was extremely rich. I mean, he was rich enough to where the king was like, dude's got, you know, some big piggy banks, you know, he was impressed by Haman's wealth. And so Haman is a man of, of he has a high posture he is a man of great wealth. He is a man of, of tremendous influence. And obviously he's pretty intelligent. He's got ideas and plans and schemes that he's able to hatch. And so at this time, Esther seems totally defeated. It seems as if her people are going to be subjugated to Haman's will and his rule. And it seems as if they're, they're defeated. All the cards, you know, all the chips are stacked against them. But yet God shows up. God shows up and Haman is, is defeated. And Haman is an archetype for all evil rulers that have been and that will be. And it promises and it guarantees that God will ultimately have victory over those that go against his people and against his plan, against his purposes. Brian Gregory says, you know, thinking about all the different archetypes of Haman's, he says, Adolf Hitler, the Duvalier family in Haiti, the Kim family in North Korea, Idi Amin in Uganda, Benito Mussolini in Italy, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Joseph Stalin in Russia, Dianesti, Bagorza in Rwanda, Mao Zedong in China, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Rafael Trulio in the Dominican Republic, each of them, like Haman, had an unquenchable thirst for power and unrelenting brutality toward anyone who threatened it. Haman stands as a prototype for all the mass murderers, tyrannical despots, and ruthless dictators. But now he comes to his day of reckoning. It's promising, and this is a guarantee that that each person is going to have their day of reckoning. That there will ultimately be justice for those that that seek to have tyranny over people, that seek to murder people mercilessly, that seek to impose their will without any reign, without any care or compassion. That God will ultimately reign and rule over every evil empire that opposes itself against His purposes. But we believe that Jesus has done something even greater than just that. Because think about when Jesus came, Israel was in captivity, right? I mean, it wasn't like Israel had political freedom. They were in prosperity. Israel was in political captivity. Rome had subjugated them. They were not free. They were at Rome's mercy. And they got that shown to them very frequently by Rome's crucifixions of those that rebelled against Rome. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, right, everybody's like, liberation, political liberation, give us freedom. We don't want the Romans. Free us from Rome, right? All the zealots come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you're going to join our cause, right? You're going to, you're gonna liberate Israel from the political bondage of, the, of Rome. Why is it that Jesus rejects that? Why is it that Jesus doesn't say, you know, granted, because us as Americans, that's what we would want, right? I mean, we can't imagine that if anybody came and subjugated us, we would be like, First thing, we're going to war. Like, you're not taking our freedom. But Jesus says, listen, I've got a bigger purpose than that. I've got a bigger, there's a bigger enemy than someone simply suppressing your political freedom. The enemies that I've come are the reason that there are people that do that. You see, I've come to defeat the enemy that even gives rise to that potential. I've come to destroy something that is what causes every war this is what causes famine and hunger in this world. I have come to destroy that enemy. And what you see is so short-sighted. It's so narrow. You see, you, you seek to destroy Rome here and now. I seek to destroy the Rome that will be forever. The Rome that will constantly be putting itself up against every single people. I've come to destroy that enemy. Jesus came to destroy sin. The sin that lies within each one of us. The selfishness, the pride that can turn every single person into a kind of Hitler. That can turn every single person into a tyrannical, you know, evil, maniacal person. We think that it's not possible. We look at ourselves, we know, oh, I I could never do something like that. I guarantee you the people that were in Germany, the average person, they never would have thought it, but all of a sudden their culture changed. Their culture changed and they started to mold to that culture. Except if they were changed by Christ. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood up in the midst of that culture that said, this is the problem. They were poor They're desperate. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up and said, this is not the answer. This is not the answer. And he was willing to go through persecution for that. Jesus has come. He has come to destroy sin, to have victory over sin. He became a curse on the tree so that you and I would be free from sin. And so when you come to Christ, you have a choice. He has given you freedom from sin. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Not only has he come to crucify sin, but he has come and he has defeated death. Right? The enemy that holds sway over every single person. Its ratio is one for one. It bats a hundred. And Jesus has said, I've come to defeat death. No longer will death have power over you. No longer will you be afraid of death because death is not the end. It is simply the beginning to an eternity with me. And he tricked the devil. He tricked the deceiver. He deceived the deceiver by having victory over death by dying. And he has said, come, I have defeated a far bigger death in Rome. I have defeated death itself, and he has said, "Listen, I have defeated the true enemy. I have defeated Satan." You see, he thought that he was gaining victory over me by crucifying me, but really that was his downfall. That was his defeat. That through the cross and through the resurrection, I have defeated Satan and I have defeated spiritual enemies and forces. And so there are—we really do have an enemy. He's a—he's a, a lion seeking out whom he may devour. And Jesus says, "I have overcome him." And that you and I, when we are in Christ, we have overcome him. And we can have victory. Those are real. Satan and demons are real. I've seen it. I've seen it in spiritual warfare myself. I've seen it in spiritual warfare on others. I've seen it in generational sin. Where it, the same thing that happened years and years and years and generation and generation goes, is continually passed down. You don't think that that's spiritual warfare. You don't think that, that, that that's the enemy seeking to enslave your whole family. But Christ can bring liberation. He can bring freedom from the enemy if you will come to him. If you will come to him, he can cause you to be born again and to have freedom from that. He has gained for us a far greater victory than any political deliverance ever could. And this gives us hope. This gives us hope. This gives us hope that when we lose our loved ones, it's not the end if they are in Christ. This gives us hope when we're struggling. When we're fighting the sin that that so easily entangles us day after day, this is not the end of our story. This is not the ultimate reality. This is not who we are. But we are bound with Christ and he has had victory over this enemy. And that one day, the evil that we see lay waste on this world. It will be thrown into a lake of fire and that there will be peace. There will be shalom. There will be wholeness in this world once more. And this is what we are as people that follow Jesus. We are people of hope. This hope infuses everything in our lives. It guides us. It strengthens us in the darkness of days. And so, as we go today, as we celebrate Christmas, as we come and we worship more, I just I pray that you would allow this hope to seep into your circumstances. Whatever the enemy is, whether it's your own sin, whether it's the the forces of this world, whether it's the loss or the death that you fear or those of loved ones, I pray that you would. Let the hope that Christ has had victory over these enemies seep into your life. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much. You are so good. And thank you that you are strong and that you have defeated our enemies, God. And that one day we will see that in its fullness. But help us for now to live in the hope of that reality. We love you. Amen.